So this week is Holy Week. And it's a special week in our calendar because Jesus, his three years of earthly ministry have come to a peak, it's come to a pinnacle, and it culminates in this final week. During this final week, more will be written about Jesus and his life than any other time. Matthew dedicates eight chapters to Jesus' last week. Mark writes six chapters, as does Luke. And John commits nine chapters, or almost half of the Gospel of John, simply to the last week of Jesus. During the last week of Jesus' life, we see Jesus do some of the following. He clears out the temple. He tells multiple parables. He answers questions from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and anyone else who can see, plus any lawyers, anybody else who wants to try to trip him up. He taught the multitudes. He taught his disciples about end times, and he celebrates the Passover, as well as wash his disciples' feet. All in his last week. All we have recorded in Scripture is 50 days of the life of Jesus. But each gospel tells the story we're going to focus on today, which is the triumphal entry, or what we call Palm Sunday. Pastor Scott's been going through the book of Mark, and when he asked me a couple weeks ago to speak today, I said, well, what do you want me to talk on? He said, well, Palm Sunday. I said, okay. And so we're going to just, he said, just fast forward to Mark. And so we're going to start with Mark chapter 11 and go through verses 1 through 3. We will be flipping around today. So if you are opening your Bible, you'll be flipping back and forth. We're going to actually look at all four gospel accounts of the triumphal entry. So Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 3 says this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So the first thing I think about when I read this is I need a backstory. So the backstory in Mark simply is we find Jesus in Jericho healing a blind man. That's where we leave off there. But if we look at the Gospel of John, John gives us a little bit more detail into where Jesus was right before the entry into Jerusalem, and that's where we want to turn now. So flip to John chapter 11, and we're going to look at verses 54 to 57. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so they might arrest him. So this takes place immediately after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And the Pharisees wanted Jesus arrested and out of their way. But to the average Joe, 
maybe the average Jew, Jesus was the talk of the town. Jesus had already rocked everyone's world for the past three years with his miracles, his teaching, his compassion, his love. Now people were wondering the ultimate question. Was this, was Jesus the Christ? Was he the Messiah? Was he the anointed one? Was he the one they'd been waiting for for centuries, for millennia? Was he the one they'd been praying for? So let's continue on in John chapter 12, verses one through three. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I really think that if we'd go there today, that exact spot, we'd be able to smell the perfume still today. I think it was like the best smelling perfume ever. I think if they would have bottled that and sell it today, they'd make a lot of money. But we know exactly where Jesus is at this point. He's in Bethany, eating with his friends, and I mean, he just raised Lazarus from the dead, so they're giving a meal in his honor. And so, I mean, that's the least they could do, right? And so, we always see Jesus eating. He's eating with the Pharisees. He's eating with what the Bible calls sinners. He eats with his disciples. Now, he has, finally has a meal in his honor. Bethany itself is a town about two miles southeast of Jerusalem, which is situated on the main road between Jericho and Jerusalem. So all these thousands of pilgrims coming from Jericho to Jerusalem for the Passover would have passed right through Bethany, and they would have heard everything that had just happened. John chapter 12, we're going to fast forward a little bit. Verses 9 through 12 say, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So John gives us the complete backstory to where Jesus was, and that the Pharisees were insanely jealous of his following. We know that in the, when the New Testament says large crowds, this means thousands and thousands and thousands of people. We're not talking about just a few dozen or just the number of people who are in church this morning, but we're thinking thousands of people. In fact, during the time of Jesus, the population of Jerusalem was 25,000 people. It's estimated that anywhere between 180,000 and 3 million people would have descended upon Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And although not everyone had seen Jesus, and not everyone had heard Jesus speak, everyone would have heard about Jesus. It's very similar, you historians will know this, about the time of the Civil War, Harry Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Not everyone had read Uncle Tom's Cabin, but everybody that had any kind of intellect would have heard about and discussed Uncle Tom's Cabin. The same idea here, that everyone might not have heard Jesus speak, but they would have heard about him. 
So now flip back to Mark. We're going to go back to Mark, the first three verses we picked up there. He sends out two disciples to go get a colt. And my question is simply, what two disciples did Jesus send in this errand? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But that's a good point that the Bible is there to tell us about Jesus, to tell us about God. There's a lot of facts that we aren't privy to, and this is part of it. I'd love to know who those two people were. It could have been two of his inner circle, out of the 12, or it could have been just two disciples. There were many people following Jesus, not just the inner 12. Jesus tells his disciples that this is a cult they're looking for, for it has never been ridden. The idea of being on a colt no one else has ever ridden is the idea of his exalted position, his sovereignty, his kingdom, his command. The book of Matthew adds in his account that a donkey is there with her colt and both are untied. I'm not sure that gives us any insight that maybe Matthew is one of the two disciples that went. You can come to your own conclusions. I don't know, but that might be. Now we do want to go back to the book of Matthew and pick up what he has to say about this event. Verse chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to his daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a really big deal. This is a prophecy from Zechariah. He wrote this five centuries before it takes place. And the disciples would have been very, very aware of this prophecy. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 is where it comes from. And this is what it says in Zechariah. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So think about this. He's writing this, and it's going to come true on this day. I mean, it comes true. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Zion's just another word for Jerusalem. But rejoice and shout and triumph are the first things. What is, saying, what is happening is that that prophecy is coming true on Palm Sunday. The people are lining the roads, and they're shouting and rejoicing. And then it says, behold, your king is coming to you. The king is coming. And it describes him as righteous. The idea of righteous here is the idea that he's just, that his justice is perfect. And the idea also is that there's a comparison between God's justice and man's justice. And there is no comparison. That God's justice is always perfect. Man's justice is not. And then also says, with salvation. Salvation is the idea of saving us. So he's righteous and endowed with the ability to save us. And then it says, humble, mounted on a donkey. I mean, think about Jesus He could have come in any way. He could have come swooping in on 10,000 angels. He could have done anything to say, it's me, it's me. Think, But the prophecy says humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I mean, that just can't happen. It's five centuries ahead of time. 
and he comes in humble. Riding on a colt is the idea of peace. Jesus was coming not as a conquering general, but a suffering servant. Now we're going to go back to Mark chapter 11 and look at verses 4 through 6. They, meaning the disciples, went and found a colt outside in the street, tied it at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. So was this a miracle, or had Jesus prearranged this? In my research, it is a hotly debated topic, one that I think probably they spend too much time debating, but either way, it could have happened. Jesus simply could have provided a miracle and said, this is, you know, I can do anything. This is how it does. Other scholars believe that Jesus, who has knew many people and many contacts in many different villages, the people of a village simply said, you know, if you ever need anything, just let us know, and it's yours. And some people believe that's kind of how it happened, and when they told him the Lord is in need of it, they said, okay, it is yours. Either way, the result is the same. Jesus had his mode of transportation. What we want to do now is contrast the entry of Jesus coming in to Jerusalem humbly on a colt with that of a Roman triumphal entry. So think about how you would want to come in if you were going to be royal the king versus how Jesus did. So this is how they did in Roman days. When a Roman general had a decisive victory, he killed at least 5,000 enemy soldiers. There became an elaborate parade, first treasures captured from the enemy, and then the prisoners. His armies marched in unit by unit, and finally the general rode in on a golden chariot pulled by magnificent horses. Priests then burned incense in his honor, and crowds shouted and praised his name. The parade ended at the arena, where some prisoners were then thrown to wild animals for the cheering crowd. So think about the difference between how Jesus is coming in humbly on a colt versus a Roman general saying, look at me, it's all about me, I did all of this. And then even, I mean, Jesus comes in peace on a colt. Whereas the Roman, so Roman general comes in and he's gonna throw his prisoners to the animals to have them eaten in some kind of entertainment ritual. Back to Mark chapter 11, verses seven through 10. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. The disciples put their cloaks and their garments on the colt. This represented the wealth of disciples. Wealth in those days, unless you were extremely wealthy, was wrapped up in what you wore because you, couldn't, you didn't have that much wealth. And so they put it there, and they put it on the ground. But more importantly, it paid homage to Jesus as king. This was an ancient tradition seen in the Old Testament when people put garments in front of King Jehu. They were honoring Jesus by doing this. The multitude 
And Matthew records a very large crowd, so think thousands and thousands and thousands, which came to see Jesus, did likewise, put garments on the ground so the coal could go over it. Palm branches, which is what John specifies in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it simply says branches that they cut, but in John he specifies palm branches, symbolizes goodness, grandeur, and most importantly, in my opinion, victory, that Jesus comes in victory. Palm branches in ancient Jerusalem were on coins, were on the side of significant buildings, were put on the side walls and the inside and outside of the temple by King Solomon. Palm branches are tokens of joy and triumph used in very festive occasions. The multitudes then shouted, Hosanna! Hosanna means save now or save us. But the crowds are saying this because they want immediate salvation from Roman oppression. They're not thinking of a spiritual savior, but a political savior. They believe the answer to their happiness, their well-being, is a political solution, not a spiritual solution. They've put all their hope into overthrowing Caesar. So I just want to take a tangent on this for a second and say, does this sound anything familiar to our day today? Some people would say, if only a certain political party was in charge, or a certain person was in charge of our state or our country, things would be different, and I'd be happy or happier. I don't want to bust your political bubble. But the last 50 elections have made the claim that this is the most important election in our times. In the last 50 years, both Republicans and Democrats have had their turn to do things, and guess what? The world is still going downward in a very sinful mess. I'm not saying politics is not important. I teach it. I read about it probably about as much as anyone, so I understand the importance of it. I believe we should be involved in politics. I believe we should vote our conscience. But seriously, if you believe politics can make you happy, you are making the same mistake people made 2,000 years ago. And believe me, things were a lot worse for the Jews under Roman oppression than they are in America today. All I'm saying is keep perspective. Understand we are in need of a spiritual renewal. We need to see Jesus as our spiritual savior. And too many times we want to cross him over and we want to use Jesus as our political savior too. He is our spiritual savior. The only gospel we haven't looked at yet is the gospel of Luke. So we want to look at Luke right now, chapter 19, verses 37 through 38. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began praising Jesus for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're quoting Psalm 118.26, which was a hymn of royal entry. When the pilgrims came into Jerusalem, this is what they'd be chanting or singing. This is what they would say. The last part of that where it says, peace in heaven and glory in the highest should sound a little familiar, 
That's what Gabriel said to the shepherds when they announced Jesus as far as being born that day. Luke chapter 19, verses 39 through 40. And this is my favorite part of the story. Says some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, now remember, there's thousands of pounds, thousands of thousands, thousands of people. So the Pharisees will actually have to shout this. They would shout, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I love his response. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So does anybody else really wish at this point Jesus would just say, quiet, I want to hear the stones humming to me. And that would be your first rock band right there. It would be stones, you know, crying out. It would be awesome. Through the first three years of Jesus' ministry, he gave strict instructions to keep quiet. I mean, when he told the demons to come out, he would say, present them somewhere else. They'd say, we know who you are. And like, you're going somewhere else. The lepers, the, the blind, the lame, whoever he healed, he said, be quiet, do the ceremonial thing, but don't tell them who I am. But now it's time to celebrate who Jesus is. It's time to celebrate the Messiah. It's time to shout with praise. In the book of Matthew, it finishes his description of the event this way. It says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. When Matthew says the city was all stirred, that's the same word we get seismic from. So it's a, literally, it means the city was shook with excitement. Everyone was talking about Jesus. But I love how the people respond when asked who this is. There's no hesitation. There's no being ashamed for knowing. They answered, this is Jesus. Just as people stood up 2,000 years ago, we are to stand firm today. So as we look at this familiar story, what application can we use to today? I came away with a handful of application points. The first is God tells the truth. You might say, well, duh, of course God tells the truth. But I think we need to be reminded over and over and over again that God tells the truth. Because if we really believe that God tells the truth, when temptation came to our lives, we'd walk away. We'd say, hey, God's got a better plan for me. So we constantly need to be reminded that God tells the truth. And I mean in this circumstance that if a prophecy about Jesus riding on a colt from five centuries in the past can come true, don't you think everything in Scripture is accurate? I mean, I just want you to think about everything that still has to come. I mean, I would love for today that the trumpet would sound and the angel would, call, an angel would, would shout out and Jesus would come. I mean, it's predicted that Jesus will come a second time. The living and the dead will rise in the rapture. If an insignificant event like someone riding in on a colt predicted five centuries ahead of time, you're playing, I mean, if you don't believe that God is going to fulfill all of his prophecies and all of scripture is going to come true, that's what's going to happen. God has a plan and a purpose, period. There is a heaven, there is a hell. There's nowhere in between. 
And once you're in one, there's no getting you out of it. And if you've never accepted Christ in your life, today's the day of salvation. Because Jesus is saying, I want to be the Lord of your life. The first thing is, God tells the truth. The second thing is, praise the name of Jesus. We have the opportunity to praise Jesus. We are to do, do so. We are to do so being bold, without shame, understanding who Jesus is. We might praise him through song. We might praise him through humming. We might praise him through listening. We might praise him just with a one-on-one time with Jesus. However you do it, praise the name of Jesus. A third thing would be this, and it's a, it's a verse I often pray as I'm walking to school, and it's have this attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus. Think about the attitude Jesus had here. Jesus was humble. He rode in on a colt, yet he was confident. He told the Pharisees, even the stones would shout out. Jesus is Savior, yet a servant. In four days, he will wash his disciples' feet. Think about that. The disciples that put the cloaks on, that said, you're the king. In four days, we'll be arguing about who the greatest is in the kingdom. And Jesus will get down and wash the feet of his disciples. The last thing is this. This is our week. If you're a Christ follower, this is our week. This is Super Bowl week for us. Yes, we celebrate his coming and as a king today. And in four days, some of the same people who cried Hosanna will cry out, crucify him. But our hope is in next Sunday. Next Sunday is our day. It's Resurrection Sunday. I love the old hymns we used to sing on Easter Sunday. And I really love the one that says, He lives. I mean, that summarizes the life of a Christ follower. He lives, He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me, He talks with me. That's it. That's what we do as a Christ follower. He walks with me, He talks with me. As we go through this life that goes up and down and up and down, but Jesus is the one solid rock amongst them all. And we know he's alive because he's with us daily, because he's a resurrected savior. And so as we go about this week, let's not forget that we will look at Jesus dying on the cross on Friday. And as Tony Campalo says, yes, Satan is doing his little jig and his little dance because he thinks he's won it then. But never forget that Sunday's coming, that Sunday is the victory for every Christ follower. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have a plan and a purpose for everyone here. Thank you that Jesus has died on the cross for our sin and risen from the dead. And there's so many times we just take it for granted. We've heard the story, we know the facts, but Lord, it's anything but that. It's something supernatural. And Father, as we celebrate this week, and we think of next Sunday, and we could celebrate the resurrection, we just pray that as we go out, we'd have this attitude 
that Christ had to be humble, yet confident that we're sure of who we are in Jesus. And help us as we go out this week to bear much fruit and to never be ashamed of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.